1: Hi, welcome back to Hurtel. One of our favorites. We love talking to him. Uh, he's the malarkey correspondent for The Independent, or so he says. That's because he covers Congress, also writes for MSNBC, a few other places. Eric Garcia, reporter extraordinaire. How are you, sir? How are you doing, my man? Fantastic, fantastic. We're going to talk about Congress a little bit later on, but I wanted to start talking about uh, Latinos because we've been talking about them in a political sense. Uh, they were a big item. They were really the headlighting item on the census data. When you look at it, largest growing group, naturally growing group, not through immigration, through births, those sorts of things. But you had to touch on the fact that it's a very diverse group. And you wrote in the independent, you took off of something where, you know, here we go again. Somebody said something stupid on the internet. Uh, attacking AOC, but you took it in an interesting direction about the diversity of Latinos and how they're perceived. Just talk about that piece for a minute for folks.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was something like, so Tucker Carlson basically called AOC and entitled white lady. And like, let's start out by saying that Tucker Carlson has an agenda and Tucker Carlson was just being a jerk. But one of the things that was interesting to me is that he called her a, uh, entitled white lady, and of course, AOC sees herself as a person of color. and the the point to me was that a lot of is that Tucker Carlson really he doesn't have any room to talk about this because even Latinos don't have a hard uh, definition of who's white and who isn't. So a lot of uh, a lot of Latinos, for example, for many years, you know, so for example, a lot of Cubanos, I think something like 85% of Cubanos uh, in America are likely to, in 2010, they were likely to identify as white alone. And that plays a role in how they see themselves in identity and how they saw themselves in relation to the civil rights movement. Whereas, like, I grew up, uh, one of my second or third cousins wrote a whole book about the history of Chicano pride in America. Uh, and then conversely, there. but then also at the same time, there are Afro-Cubans. And Afro-Cubans, you know, obviously are black and they obviously experience racism on the island, but they also experience racism in the United States. And their experiences are uniquely different. And at the same time, but and it's not just, but like, you know, I think a lot of people say like, well, that's just the Cubans, they're, you know, they came to the United States because of communism, because of the Cold War and things like that. But even if you go to some parts of the border in the Rio Grande Valley, a lot of Tejanos will say, yo no, soy te, yo no soy gringo, yo no soy mexicano, yo soy Tejano, which is to say, I'm not white, I'm not Mexican, I'm Tejano. And even then, a lot of them will say that they're white. And like a perfect example of this is growing up, my dad told me that like his dad, my grandpa. You uh, see, hear this saying: uh, "If you're white, you're all right. If you're brown, stick around. If you're black, go back." And I thought that, that was just apocryphal until I was listening to an old Big Bill Brunsy song where that said that exact phrase. And so, and and I so I think that the point being is that there is is that the entire question of who's white and who is not is one that divides Latinos constantly, and I don't think that in. We're never going to really have a hard. We're never going to really have a hard agreement on it because if you get five different Latinos with different ethnicities, as one of uh, as one uh, Latino activist in Arizona told me, we don't even eat the same rice, so we're not going to have the same agreements on anything else. So that that was the point I was trying to make: is that we don't even agree on who's white and who's a person of color and things like that. So Tucker Carlson sure as hell doesn't. So
1: love in, any answer that gets music and food in your explanation. That's fantastic. Look, just, exactly. just in our circle of friends that contributed to this program, look at, look at the people we talked to. We just had Mark Izaguiri on talking about the Rio Grande Valley. Yes. Um, you know, you wouldn't know unless you looked at his last name and he started talking to you about it. Our friend uh, Dennis Saunders, a black man in Minneapolis. You wouldn't know he's from Puerto Rico. You know, this is a diversity yeah. thing. And I think the first thing is you don't want to assume because when you start assuming that's when your prejudices and your priors and your ignorance starts coming out. And with the Latino group, we just talked about the census data. It's the fastest growing group. It's also the fastest diversifying group in America. This is just something we keep wanting to talk about this in politic terms. This is a massive cultural shift for the Latino people. And there's a lot of different kinds of them.
0: Yeah. So like, I think the, the 2020 census data showed that something like, the number of Latinos who identify as white dropped to 20%, while the number that selected two or more races jumped from 6% to 33%. And anybody who, and the numbers who identify as others spiked from like 37% to 42%. So, and then comparatively in like, 2010 this the status show that like about 53 percent identify as white 53 percent So this is not uh this is not a set a group that's set in stone their identity shift their um how they identify how they see themselves as americans shift uh how that you, you know like you know t- t- to the point that that you mentioned that how you would never know. My mom, when we were growing, when we were growing up, we lived in Florida for like two years. My mom is Mexican. My mom is proudly proud to be Mexican. But if you saw her, she has a really light complexion. So a lot of people in Miami thought she was white or thought she was Cuban. And then uh, and it wasn't until she and then she's like, no, I'm Mexican. Uh, so I think that the fact that these diverging identities are constantly changing is kind of in some ways the story of America, because uh, in 1930 I didn't get to mention this in my piece, but like in 1930, the 1930 census uh, included Mexican Americans, and then it took it out, and then it wasn't until the 1970 or the 1980 census that the term Hispanic was included. So these terms are malleable, people enter in and out of them all the time, because they're they're imperfect, you know, just like any term, they're imperfect and they're not gonna capture everything. So it makes sense that people would that they're that they're hard to, you know, classify.
1: Yeah. And we know uh talking to Eric Garcia, he writes for The Independent, along with a lot of other things, also has a great book we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh certified Latino to talk about Latino issues today. Uh we know that education and economics are a big part of how a culture changes yes. and views itself. You were tweeting about a piece from Sarah Brown uh, from the Chronicle about Latinos feeling left out of the college race. There's a demographic and some stats now that they left college in droves during the pandemic. Uh, There's also some traditional uh, leniency in some of those demographics about going to higher education because, you know, traditionally it was a labor force or a working class thing. They're starting to spread out now. That's something else that really, really changes the perspective both inwardly of themselves and how people outside should perceive them.
0: Yes, absolutely. And like, you know, it's funny because Sarah and I were were talking about this and Sarah's an old friend. I've known Sarah for 10 years and we were classmates at UNC together. And like she pointed out that a lot of Latinos, they don't, they, they, they left during the pandemic because they didn't, a lot of Latinos see college. They see college, I think in a way that's different from a lot of other, from a lot of other groups. They don't see the liberal the value of the liberal arts, the general education, as much as other people do. They see it. They need to see a direct correlation between jobs and education. And I think when the pandemic hit, and a lot of them, a lot of people went remotely. Some people said, "Well, I got to afford to feed my family." And a lot of Latinos, of course, who are frontline workers who work in the service industry, their parents couldn't afford to pay for it. And on top of that, one one interesting stat that I that I didn't notice was that. But I know for a fact, from my own experience, and a lot of Latinos don't like going into debt when it goes to when it comes to going to college. They prefer to pay as they go. Uh, you know, it was really out of the ordinary when I took out student loans to go to university, uh, and I just paid off my student loans last year uh, because I wrote a book. But that was so different from the experience. Even my cousin, uh, my cousin Andrea, she played soccer for Baylor. The way she. She started playing soccer when God knows how, how young she was, but it was with the explicit expectation that she would get a scholarship to play soccer. So that's another part is that the expense of college is also prohibitive. And if they don't see that this is a worthwhile return on an investment, I, it's really easy to see people drop off. A perfect example of this is my dad. My dad went to school at East Carolina University for like two years, but then he got a job and he was just like okay i i got a job like i don't need a college degree so he went like 30 years without having a degree until like 1990. until like 2003 he went back and got his degree online or something like that but it's it's not like that so i think that that's one of the other things is that latinos don't latinos are leaving the workforce because of the pandemic because they don't they're not reaping the immediate benefits but that 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 comes as a detriment because the more that employers require education and the more that they require people to have a college degree, the less Latinos are going to have the opportunities to succeed.
1: Yeah. And I kind of think about talking to Eric Garcia. I just think about my own family, like my mom and dad's generation, you know, they came up, they both graduated high school and went to college in the 60s. They were the first generation of either side of my family to ever go to college, either side. And the, And by default, they're the first generation to not live in abstract poverty, going all the way back to the old country, whichever way you want to cut it. Is part of this just generational shifts where you have, you know, multiple generations of Latinos in the country? Now they're finding their own way. And some of them, whether through technology or just uh, we've talked about the economic growth, that's changed the political landscape of it. They're just going, hey, we want more. But the traditional path of getting more, it may not be college. It may be working through government. It may be working through the police force. It may be working through entrepreneurship. Uh, There's a huge mass into the digital realm and new media and things like this. Isn't this just kind of a natural generation shift that all demographics are going to go through?
0: Natural generation shift, and it is a natural thing because, like, I think back. So, like, before I went, before I set foot at a university, I went to community college, and a lot of people who were at community college weren't even getting a four there to get a four year degree; they were going to get a certificate. And like, a lot of people were getting degrees in auto technology, or they were getting a degree they were getting their nursing certification. Uh, and even so, like I went to so like I grew up in the I grew up in Chino Hills, California, which was very suburban, largely white, largely college educated. But I went to Community College uh, on the in Chino, which was just right next door. That's where my family ancestry was from. I want to say it's about like fifty percent Latino. Something like like not like eat like, like a quarter of uh, or a fifth had a college education, but it was largely working class. It was largely, uh, you know, uh, you know, there were a lot of mechanics, plumbers. Uh, people who work in trades, and I think that they saw that, you know, you're seeing now that more Latinos might be going to school because they saw that, like, we want more, and we want to be able to get a job, but at the same time, I think that what universities need to do to attract them, to attract Latinos, is they need to say specifically, okay, this is going to be the thing that allows you to get a job, even if you don't wind up getting a, a job and the degree you specialized in. This is the beneficial thing because it'll because it'll enable you to move up. Because a lot of Latinos, I think about even my own family you know my 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 dad would say that like you know he's a proud latino man and he's proud you know of his heritage but he also said that like you know our family is a lot like he, he would say you know and, and he did say our family is a lot like the irish and our family is a lot like jewish americans and italians and poles and you, you know the other people who came from 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 old countries and then you know moved up in the world and, and, and and became, you know, American. So I think that, I think that's the other thing is that universities need to do a better job of saying that, okay, Latinos are in this country, a lot of them by, you know, as you saw, the census numbers are showing they're growing by birth, that a college education is a way to, um, is a way to be firmly established and have firm footing. But that is, but I, 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 I'm not seeing that as of right now. Some schools are doing it, but I would like to see it more on, on a widespread and a widespread scale to show that like there's a benefit to going to school.
1: Yeah. Talking to Eric Garcia, reporter for The Independent, writer all over the place. Good guy. Uh, talking to a little Latino. When we come back, we're going to get into his day job. Congress, how it's covered, what they're up to, that sort of thing. We'll get into that with Eric Garcia right after this on Hartel. Welcome back to Hurtel. talking to Eric Garcia. Okay, your day job, you cover Congress. Uh, you call it the Malarkey Factory. Uh, yes. we, we bash on Congress because they deserve it. But take us behind the scenes real quick, because we don't just cover the news here and react to the news. We want to know how the news gets made. Take us behind the scenes. Tell people what it's like to actually cover Congress. What a gaggle is. What it's like to chase Joe Manchin down a hallway to try to get a 30-second soundbite that was the same soundbite from six months ago. Uh, committee hearings. There's a lot going on on the Hill. You have the Senate. You have the House. Take us behind the scenes what it's like to actually try to get information out to the people about Congress.
0: You know, like I, I, I compare it a lot. I was talking to my mom about this. I compare it a lot to whale watching um, because what happens is... You will have like you can go because like especially during committee hearings, especially if it's not something you you specifically want to cover, but you're trying to catch someone, you could wait like an hour, two hours for someone. And I think that that like it, it, especially when I work for a publication like The Independent, which which thrives on high metabolism journalism, and it's very much of that tradition of like uh, of British tabloids where you have go, go, go. It's hard to sometimes convince people, convince them that like, hey, sometimes you need to, sometimes I need to wait outside for two hours or three hours. So that's one thing. But I think what's what's, what's important to recognize is that the House and the Senate are two completely different animals. Uh, I think people say, well, what's the difference? The Senate is very much more collegial in a lot of ways. Um, One one of the points that I like to make is that, uh, you know, a full year after, uh, the uh, the the riot at the Capitol. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and Josh Hawley were working on legislation to end non-disclosure a forced arbitration on sexual harassment. They don't agree on anything else, but they work. They by virtue of the Senate being the Senate, they have to work together because there's fewer colleagues. There's there's only a hundred of them because of the filibuster. You, anything you have to do, and Gillibrand has told me this much that you have to work together. The House is it's kind of like junior high. There's factions, there's pettiness, there's there's a there's this propensity to just want to fight the other person. There's less of an incentive to work together. And I think the other thing that's important to recognize is that, you know, t- to your point about, about waiting outside for a gaggle, the House can sometimes be in for votes for like two hours they'll be on the floor. And you just got to sometimes wait for two hours on the floor. Um, I mean, or, or outside the reporters will all just be waiting outside and, you know, you can't really leave because if somebody comes out, you had to be there for them, but then you also kind of can't, um, you also kind kind of can't, uh, you know, leave. So like, for example, I have my work phone and I have my cell phone at one point or another, I'm usually charging one or the other uh, in my, back at my desk at the gallery, in the press gallery, because I don't want to run out of power when I'm waiting to, you know, talk, when I'm waiting to, you know, record someone. Uh, and then like, you know, sometimes I'm like, cause I've, you know, literally gone to use the bathroom or change my phone or charge my phone and then like I re- and then like I've missed someone that I need to do that I need to catch. Um and then but then like sometimes what happens is that there'll just be a flurry of people coming through that you need to catch. And that, that's just one of those times where you need to be judicious. So, for example, I'll give, I'll give you the perfect example is that one day I needed to catch both AOC and Nancy Mace. And that was when uh, Nancy Mace was having her kind of war words with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And it, it was kind of a split decision that I was like, I can always catch AOC. But like at the moment, I needed to catch Nancy Mace. And literally AOC passed by me. But I was like, it sucks. I needed to catch her, too, because I wanted to get her thoughts on Lauren Boebert saying something really racist about Ilhan Omar, but I also needed to catch this. So sometimes that's the calculation you make on the other hand, I think that's why you need to build up sources with staffers because sometimes staffers will tell you, because one of the things about it that I've learned is that members often don't have time to know everything. But their staffers are the ones who learn the most stuff. So that's why it's important to, to, to build up good relationships with staffers. That's why, you know, you can't really do it. During, you can't do it as you couldn't do it as much as the pandemic, but that's why you go to get dinner with them or you go to have drinks with them or lunch with them. But then sometimes, sometimes I'll tell you I'll tell you my favorite, the funniest story that I, one of my funniest stories that I have about uh, about covering. Uh, about covering Congress is, what is this was back in November when there was that negotiation. They were determining whether to pass the vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill or not. And all the progressives were huddled in. This is an important distinction. Everybody thinks that all the offices are in the Capitol. There are actually six different buildings aligning the Capitol. Andrew, you know this. With like on the Repu- on the on the House side, there's Rayburn, Cannon, and Longworth. And then on the House, on the Senate side, there is Russell. Uh, Hart and Dirksen. So we were all waiting in Longworth because progressives were meeting for like three or four hours. And the other thing was, because I have a few members, I have like one member's cell number, so I couldn't text them because they all left their phones out on the table before so that nobody would leak to the press. (laughs) And like midway through, you start seeing all their phones light up and, little, and later on, I learned from like reading another dispatch that it was Pelosi calling them so that she knew they were all in a meeting, but she wanted the first thing that they would see is that they got a, sculpt, a voicemail for the speaker so that, you know, to put the fear of God into them. So sometimes, sometimes that happens. And then other times, the, the funniest thing is that other times like stories will fall into your lap. So I don't know. So like a big talk, a thing that's being discussed in Congress is whether to ban members of Congress from trading stocks. Uh, So one time I had this really nuanced like five minute conversation with Senator John Ossoff, who's the uh, sponsor of the main of one of the main pieces of legislation. And then after I uh, we walked all the way back to his office building on my way back, I caught Senator Tommy Tuberville when and I had seen in Business Insider. By the way, everybody should be reading Business Insider. Um, You got to subscribe to them, but it's absolutely worth it because they've done a whole thing about which members of Congress have violated the Stock Act and possibly traded with uh, stocks with private information i saw that t- tommy tuber was a still was a serial violator so i, I asked i was like senator then i realized i need to call him coach because he prefers that um and i was like uh, i was like what do you think about this And he says i think it's absolutely ridiculous you might as well be sending robots up here and i'm like i tweeted that out and i'm like Guess which one got the most attention? Was the, the nuanced conversation with John Ossoff or was it the, uh, the like 30 seconds I had with Tommy Tuberville? You can guess which one went, uh, got more attention. So, so- sometimes, that, sometimes that happens. You're like, I spend all day slaving over a story and then like, that's the, that's the one that gets, you know, the most attention.
1: Yeah, it's the same way in the print world. You'll, you'll write this 3,000 in-depth word piece, and then you do this one little blurb about something that goes viral and gets all the hits. So I feel your pain, buddy. All right. How different is it going to be this year from last year? Last year, of course, a lot of hope. The year was uh, dominated by Build Back Better and that agenda, infrastructure, all that good stuff. How much different is Congress going to feel when it comes back? They're on break right now. When they come back, They've got some heavy stuff to need to do, uh, of course, the Ukraine situation. And of course, the big bomb, the the biggest thing that ever happens in Washington media, we're going to have a Supreme Court pick coming up uh, and it's an election year, a midterm election year. How different is Congress going to feel when they do it this year as opposed to all of last year?
0: So first and foremost, they also still need to do, I mean, I they were negotiating a CR continuing resolution. So like, it looks like McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell wants there'd just be continuing resolution after continuing resolution rather than just fully funding the government for a fiscal year. So that's one thing that's going to be fun is just kicking the can down the road and not passing a full, full budget. The other thing that's happening is of course they have to pass, they're probably going to have to pass a Ukraine, not only a sanction any legislation on sanctions because a lot even Democrats are saying that President Biden's sanctions aren't enough. Uh, Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, said it's a good start, but it's not enough. So they're going to have to pass some sanctions bills. They're going to have to also pass uh, military aid, some kind of aid to Ukraine, whether it's military aid or foreign aid or some kind of thing to, 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 to support Ukraine. On top of that, I you know, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court nomination, the interesting thing that I've noticed is that Republicans are kind of split on it. So Mitch McConnell, literally, he was at an event in Lexington yesterday. He says, I don't have an objection to President Biden picking a supreme a black woman for a Supreme Court nominee. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who was the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, uh, or was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, but now he's ranking. Uh, he's one of – Grassley's the ranking member. He said, it's fine. You know, he wants him and Jim Clyburn and Tim Scott and a few other South Carolinians want Biden to pick um, uh, J Michelle Childs. Other people wanted to pick Katanji Brown-Jackson, who's a, former, uh, who's a former public defender. So that'll be. But what's interesting is that conservatives seem to really not be that interested in like having a kind of, for lack of a better term, a cockfight about it, like you saw with Amy Coney Barrett or Brett Kavanaugh or Neil Gorsuch or even Merrick Garland, because they kind of won. They have the 6-3 conservative majority. So it would be the equivalent of, like, putting your starters on when the tournament's in two weeks and, you you know, you're a number one seed. So there, there's not – I don't expect there to be a full-on assault because it's replacing Stephen Breyer. It's replacing a liberal. So that's, that's what's going to happen. Uh, you're not going to see any movement. I don't think on BBB by mansion has already said it's dead. Uh, there's talks that the negotiations might not even begin until March again, but by then everybody's going to be campaigning again. I think that by June or July, you're not going to see any progress on anything just because everybody's out campaigning. Uh, and on top of that, so you've got, you know, three Democrats are in at risk of losing three Senate seats, uh, Nevada, Nevada, uh, Arizona and Georgia, and then Republican, and then you know Republicans are look pretty likely to take back the House. So I doubt that you're going to see any big changes. The other thing that's going to be interesting to see is that the Select Committee for January 6th, they're going to start. they said they're going to start having public hearings. I don't know if they're going to start having when they're going to have it. I've been hearing it for the longest time. When are, I've been asking my people, like people I know on the committee, when the hearings are going to start. And radio silence. So who knows if they'll actually happen, but they do have their mandate. The mandate is that this ends at the beginning of the next Congress. So who knows what happens?
1: Yeah, Eric Garcia, great insight on Congress. All right, let's project out a little bit. I know we hate to do that because you're a reporter. You deal with facts, but I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Let's assume that uh, the Republicans do take the House. The Senate's a little more iffy, but if they get the House, I want to ask you, because this is a story that's going to develop later. There's already whispers. There's the backbiting. How secure is Kevin McCarthy if they get the majority? Because we hear a lot of stuff. There's a lot of rumors. He's got all kinds of issues. We know nobody really respects him because a couple of years ago, they literally went with their hat in hand to get, you know, Paul Ryan to take it instead of him. And uh, God bless him. uh, Walter Jones kneecapped him the first time, but we'll talk about that story some other time. Rest in peace, Walter Jones. But... I just because they get the majority, I think they could have a real mess on their hands right off the jump just in the leadership and the and the those sorts of fights that come once you take over the majority.
0: Yeah. So I think one of the things that a lot of people, a lot of conservatives got mad at uh, McCarthy for not holding the line on infrastructure. That was really the beginning. And then a lot of there was a lot of frustration with the fact that he couldn't keep his caucus in line on voting for the creation of a bipartisan commission for January 6th there is a lot of feeling that mccarthy just let me put it this way that's when he gave his kind of 9-hour floor long floor speech the night that the house was supposed to pass bill back better that was for an audience of one that was for that was for former president donald trump and then he got praise from trump after that but That doesn't mean that he's secure. There's still talk about Steve Scalise might leapfrog him. There's talk about even someone like Jim Banks, who is chairman of the Republican Study Conference. Conference, I forget that. I think that's their term. uh, Republican Study Committee. There's talk that he might leapfrog him. Uh, There is not, I think that the, the feeling with McCarthy is that he's just not somebody who's up to the job. The upside for him is that he has a lot of friends. A lot of people like him. Uh, You know, he recruited a lot of those initial 2010 Republicans who won the majority back in the Republican wave year. But the question is whether they like him enough to keep him there uh, and whether or not they think that he is up to the task of uh, negotiating, of, you know, blocking anything that President Biden wants to do. Blocking anything that you know, if the Senate, if say the Senate stays Democratic, you know, blocking anything Chuck Schumer wants, and really um, enacting or putting putting forward a conservative agenda. I don't think that there is. I think it's. I think it's still up the air. The difference between him and I think Paul Ryan and John Boehner was McCarthy has made a better, more concerted effort to reach out to Jordan and and, and the Freedom Caucus guys, whereas. Boehner hated them too much to ever want to deal with them. And Ryan could never satisfy them. It seems like like McCarthy has brought them more into the fold.
1: Something to keep an eye on. We always like to try to stay ahead of the news a little bit, not just reaction to it. We appreciate it. Eric Garcia, always enjoy catching up with you, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow your coverage and also follow yours. and make sure you pitch that amazingly great book, Uh, We're Not Broken. It is certified by, Trish Donaldson, my mother, former special education teacher who refers to you as that nice young man. Tell folks about the book, your social media, and where they can follow you.
0: Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Eric M. Garcia. You can follow, read my reporting at The Independent, or you can read my columns at MSNBC. You can also buy my book, We're Not Broken, Change the Autism Conversation. The paperback edition comes out May 31st. It uh, deals with a lot of other stuff that we weren't able to go into uh, in the hardcover edition. There's an afterword about... Uh, the COVID vaccine panic and how it was linked to the anti-vaccine panic of the 1990s with autism. Uh, there's a lot. So, so there's a lot of good bits there, but the hard is also a, a lot of great, a lot of fun things. So uh, it's always fun talking with you, Andrew. Uh, and and thanks very much for having me.
1: Yeah. We're going to have you back on because we're going to get into that anti-vax autism connection one of these days, because there's some really untoward wicked stuff in there. We're going to deal with Eric Garcia. Fantastic. My friend, I really appreciate your time. I hope you heal up. Thanks for playing her today, buddy.